How do I manage my former peers? Should I go and get an MBA? What can I do to get my organization to train people? Those and more community questions on today's show. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 120. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly coaching show to help people be better leaders through improved communication, human relations, and personal productivity. The people side of influence and organizations and leadership. I'm so glad to have you back for another episode of Coaching for Leaders. And if this is your first time joining, welcome because you're in for a special treat. Today's show is all questions from the community and some answers and resources from me that will hopefully help all of us to think about some new ways to influence and lead in a few of the situations I mentioned on the front of the show and also a few other topics as well. And the one thing I'll mention before getting into the questions here is that if you have a question that you'd love to get some perspective on or just, you know, get some thinking on that's different than the thinking you've been doing on it, I would love to consider it for a future question answer show. And as I've mentioned before, I'm going to be doing more and more of these and and have been doing more and more Q&A shows. So be sure to submit that question at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And you'll see a button on that page where you can record your question right from the computer. There's also a call-in number there. You can leave the question as well. I'm definitely giving preference to questions I get by audio. And the reason for that is I love hearing your voices. And I think that that's Actually, something all of you enjoy too is hearing the community voices here on the show. And it's a lot more interesting than me reading questions on the air. And so I'm definitely going to give preference to audio questions. So you can record your question on that page. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. But of course, you can also uh, send an email as well too, if you'd like, and I will get back to you that way eventually. And so let's go ahead and jump into the first question here, which is from Kyle. Hello, Dave. My name is Kyle. I'm a firefighter preparing for a promotional exam for a captain position. This is a frontline supervisory position responsible for a three-man truck company. As a subordinate position as a firefighter, there are policies which I have staunchly and openly opposed in that subordinate role. My position on these policies is shared in wide unison by virtually every member of the organization from the bottom most subordinate even up to the level of captains universally, of which I would become one. Heck, even the chief of the department used to fight the same policies when he was my captain. All of the leadership and management books that I have read say to enforce policy uniformly and consistently in order to maintain the leader's credibility. I completely understand this theory and believe it to be a proven principle. If not, you have no credible leadership ground to stand on when a subordinate retorts with, oh, so now you're going to enforce policy. My question is, how to accomplish the balance of enforcing the policies, which I have previously opposed, without losing credibility among the, quote, guy? How do I fulfill my duty as a representative of management without being ostracized as a, quote, company man? In my specific context as a firefighter, I have to continue to be a living, working member of this team and have to rely on each other. I can't afford to alienate the other members of the department in my efforts to carry out my duty as a supervisor, even though that is ultimately my duty. So I guess the question really revolves around being the buddy versus the boss. Of course, you have to be the boss, but in my context, I think it's ultra important to maintain a very strong sense of buddy, given our context. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate your help. Hey, Kyle, thank you so much for this question. And Kyle, I really appreciate your proactiveness on asking this. And I mentioned that because you're not in the role yet, but you're already thinking about how you would handle this situation as a leader. And I think that's just great that you're thinking about this in advance because most people frankly don't think about this very much, this kind of thing, until they're in the situation and someone's done something and they've got to confront it and 
now they're thinking, okay, whoa, how am I going to handle this situation? I've not had to do this in this particular position before. And your question, Kyle, reminds me of a story from a long time ago when I was in high school. I did some volunteer work for our local police department in the town I grew up in. And I remember at that time, the city hired a new police chief. And the former police chief had been there for, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. And so it was a real change for the organization. And the new police chief came in with some new policies. And one of the new policies is that he was very, very, he said it was going to be very strict that police officers were not allowed to accept any gratuities or anything from the community um, when they're out on duty. Uh, and they weren't allowed to get discounts or free anything of something that was being normally sold in the community. So, for example, if a police officer went to a restaurant, they weren't allowed to accept a free hamburger or free food or get a discount on food or anything like that because of the fact they were in uniform. And I won't bore you all with the reasons for why you would do that in a police department. But anyway, all that to say that was the new policy. So the chief was on the job. I think it was like two or three weeks and the community had its annual carnival. And one of the vendors at the carnival sold bratwurst every year. And five or six police sergeants accepted free food from this vendor. And the chief found out about it. And now the police sergeants were leaders in the organization on his command staff. The chief found out about it and he suspended all of them as soon as you know they did the investigation and found out what had happened. And it made front page news in our community. And let me tell you, there were some people, there were a lot of people actually with, within the community and certainly within the police department that were not happy with how he had handled the situation. And there were also some people that were really happy with how he handled the situation and were, was glad he was enforcing policy that he said he was going to do. But whether, whether people liked him or didn't, Everyone took that policy seriously going forward because people knew that he was going to enforce it consistently because he was willing to enforce that policy uniformly, not only with the rank and file police officers, but with the command staff, which were the first ones who violated it. And so it was a difficult decision, and it's not the way you'd want to start in a role, uh, you know, getting on the front page of having to make a decision like that, but it was one he knew he needed to make. And I heard him give a speech about that years later, and it was really fascinating about how he knew that that was the right decision, even though it was a very difficult situation. And so I mentioned that story, Kyle. This is something you already know, of course, because you've been reading up on this and studying this, but that consistency is key, and particularly in an organization like yours where you know policies and procedures may mean life or death. And so the importance of being consistent with everybody when there's a rule or a policy procedure the organization has and everyone's agreed to follow, uh, setting that standard quickly and early is important. So here's the bigger question, of course, as you ask, how do you do this with people that you were once peers with and maybe even know that you didn't agree with this policy or procedure yourself, which you've said, you know, and, and, and this is something, by the way, Kyle, this comes up a lot, not just in the fire service, every organization. In fact, this is probably one of the biggest things I've continually heard about when I have been doing my R&D project, going around and talking to people about uh, getting into leadership roles for the course I'm building. And, and this is something that comes up all the time is how do you manage people you were once peers with? And, and this is something we never talk about in leadership training very much. And most organizations never talk about when they're training people how to be managers. So here's a few suggestions for you, Kyle. First of all is I would have a conversation with people up front proactively. So once you get into that role of captain, uh, I, you're going to have, you know, a few people that you're going to be you're going to be reporting to you immediately. And so I would sit down and proactively have that conversation and say, you know, hey, here's here's what I've said in the past about this policy procedure. You know, you guys know what I uh, what my opinions have been on it personally, but that Things are, you know, some things have to change because I'm now in a new role. And I think that that is something that is important to acknowledge and for people to have a point where that conversation happens and say, hey, you know, things are different. Uh, you know, I'm in a new role and there's some things that are going to change. And one of the things that will change is regardless of what I feel about this, this policy procedure on a personal level, 
that I'm now I'm bound by the organization and I'm bound as a leader in this organization to support it and to support that policy and to know that I'm going to enforce that consistently. And then, of course, obviously, you'll have to enforce it consistently. It's going to be a big deal when someone violates that policy for the first time and how you handle it. You will set the standard for what's going to happen. And then I would say appeal to the nobler motives. So, you know, one of the things that sometimes gets lost in a lot of the policies, procedures, rules, regulations of organizations is we sometimes get, all of us, we get buried in some of these kind of bureaucratic things and we lose sight of the bigger reasons for why we're doing something and why we're part of an organization. So Kyle, when you have that first conversation, talk about what it is you're going to do differently, how you're going to handle situations, be real upfront with people about it, but then also speak to the bigger reasons for why you're doing it, You know why it's important to have policies and procedures, why it's important to have a chain of command, why that helps protect life and property and the work that you do. And I think that 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 larger perspective, that nobler motive for why the organization is doing what it's doing is key. And you know, as far as as far as you getting the criticism of being a company man or you know you're different now or you being ostracized, I, I guess my thought on that would be, yeah, you know, you know things are going to be different. You are going to be ostracized a bit. Uh, every leader who takes over in a role in a new position, and especially one who is leading people who they used to be peers with, things are going to be different. Uh, you probably will be ostracized once in a while. And that's probably a good thing. Uh, it's, you know, you want to be respected more than you want to be liked. And that's a key distinction for those of us who are uh, managing people. And if we are in a role that we have, supervisory responsibility is, you know, we all want to be liked. All of us want to be liked by people. I mean, that, that's once in a while I'll hear someone say, well, I don't, I don't need to be liked. <laughs> I always think like, wow, really? You know, we all want to be liked. But the question is, is do we need to be liked and do we need to be liked by the people that we're managing? And I think that it's a very dangerous position for us to be in a position where we feel like we need to be liked by the people we're managing. That's a very it's a very dangerous place to be. What we should be thinking about is how do I earn the respect of the people that I'm managing? If they happen to like me too, that's great. But really what's going to earn that respect? And if I had to choose between people respecting me as a manager and people liking me, I will take respected any day. I'd love to have both if I could, but I'll take respected for sure if I've got a choice between those. And so I think that that's key is that consistency, Kyle, having that conversation up front, telling people what's going to change and what's not going to change, um, and then appealing to the broader motives of why you're doing it, I think is key. I guess the only other thing I'd mention around this, Kyle, is you know you said this is a policy that everyone disagrees with in the organization and that everyone in the department, even up to the chief, disagreed with. So this is not the thing to do now, of course, as you're being being a considered for a role of greater responsibility. But I wonder, you know, six to 12 months down the road, if there may be a respectful way to enter into a conversation with some of the other leaders in your organization about, you know, is this a policy maybe we should think about looking at or revisiting that maybe, uh, you know, maybe would be embraced by the organization and that would actually help us to do our jobs better. So, you know, I don't know the details of your policy, but that might be something you may want to look at or may want to consider. And you know when you do that, of doing that in a respectful way, obviously not going around and uh, you know talking to the folks you're leading, but you know talking with the people who are leading you. Of you know how can we have a conversation like this, and is this something we'd be open to doing? And then the only other resource I'd mention, Kyle, is uh, you know I was a guest on a, sh a friend of mine's show. His name's David Solar. He has a show called The Firefighter Toolbox. It's a podcast. He's at firefightertoolbox.com. So if you're not already aware of that show, it's a good show on. Uh, leadership and the fire service. And I do think that the position you're in, Kyle, is really unique in a lot of ways because, you know, as a, as a leader in the fire service, you may be in a position where you have to give someone pretty, uh, you know, pretty stern feedback on something. And then an hour later, they may be in a position where they could save your life. And so I think the aspect you you hit on of kind of the the buddy buddy piece of it. I, I I get where you're coming from, 
And that's a very different dynamic than a lot of organizations deal with. That's a very unique thing to uh, public safety and the fire service in particular. And so uh, one of the things I'd really challenge you to do, Kyle, is when you get into that role is go talk to some of the folks in your organization that are really respected leaders who are people that the rest of the service is looking up to. And I'd go talk to them and I'd say, hey, how do you navigate this? You know, take people out for coffee and just say, what, how do you handle these situations when they come up? How do you walk this line between being needing to enforce policy, but at the same time having the 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 connection and the trust, where that when we're out handling an incident, that you know people are going to back each other up, and and that's not something I can give you because I don't have that experience in in your line of work. But if you go talk to the people who are really doing some good things and have had some great success in leadership there, I think you'll probably hear some neat things, and then you can make that part of your style as well. Kyle, good luck, and I look forward to hearing what happens with it. Our next question here is from Kirk. Hey, Dave, this is Kirk. Uh, great show on email strategies with David Spark. I'm curious to know of your and David's thoughts on the BCC function. I never use it because it just doesn't sit well with me. It, it seems almost deceitful or inauthentic. Uh, if I have an email that I want someone else to see, but not the recipients of their original email, I'll simply forward a copy to the third party with an FYI as the message. Is this like the deferred uh, message um, concept within the podcast, and perhaps I should reconsider my thinking? Thanks, Kurt. Hey, Kirk, great to hear from you. Thanks so much for the question. No, it's different than the deferred mail strategy, so let me speak to both the deferred mail strategy and the BCC. And let's hit deferred mail first because that's the easier answer or the simpler answer, I should say. Um, and what deferred mail is, David had spoke about this on episode 119. For those of you who haven't listened, uh, we talked about email strategies on episode 119 last week. And what deferred mail is, is it's either a service or a system where you actually literally defer what's in your inbox to a later date. So in practice, what that looks like, and one of the ways David uses it, so David actually has a podcast as well. And so when listeners write into him, he schedules time in, on his Saturday mornings. That's just the time that works for you know him and his professional life and with his family. He blocks out time on Saturday mornings to get back to people who have questions that come in from his show. And so when he gets an email on, say, Tuesday afternoon from a listener to his show, what he'll do is he'll actually take that email and drag it into a box called Saturday. And then what happens on Saturday morning is that email, along with all the other emails he's done that with over the week, pops up back in his inbox. And so he's literally deferred it until that particular time. Now, the reason that he does that and the reason other people are doing this more and more with deferred email is that um, it doesn't have the email sitting in your box all week long when you're not when you can't do anything with it or you're choosing not to do anything with it because you're going to handle it at a later date. And so um, it, it clears out your inbox and it has you handle kind of the like-minded things all at once. And there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can set this up. Kirk, um, there's a couple of services now that are doing this and some software that are doing this. The one that David had mentioned on this show is called SaneBox, uh, S-A-N-E-B-O-X. And that is a new service which uh, allows you to kind of do some of this management and it'll help you filter your email and figure out what's most important, what's not important. And you can set up all kinds of different folders. You can defer stuff or uh, move something into a later folder if it's not as important, or have your news go to one place, have your catalog subscriptions go to another place. So it's just a lot of kind of a, it's just kind of an automated way to handle email. So it prioritizes what you're handling and when you want to handle it. And of course, you could do this manually too, Kirk. You could take, you know, if you get an email and you see something and you know you can't handle it now, you could create a folder that says, okay, tomorrow or Friday or whatever day you're going to handle that. And that way, you don't have this overwhelm in your inbox all the time. And I'm, I'm actually thinking about doing this myself very soon because I'll get emails during the week a lot of the time. For example, I have I have email right now for people who are listening to my voice who have sent me email in the last week. 
And I've not gotten back to it. And I, I feel bad about that because um, I've been looking at the emails in my inbox all week long, but I had a busy three or four days. And so I wasn't able to get to all my email. And yet it's been sitting there. And every time I go in there, I feel bad about it. I'm like, oh, I haven't written that person back yet. I haven't written that person back yet. It would be a lot more effective if I had a particular time each week that I'd blocked out to get to community feedback or a couple of times. And then I could just defer the email to then and it would just pop back in my inbox at that point. So that's what deferred email is. It's kind of a new concept. SaneBox is one of them. Another one that's pretty popular right now, at least for folks who are using iPhones and iPads, is one called, it's actually just called Mailbox. So if you go on the Apple, if, if you use an iPhone or an iPad, if you go on the App Store, just search for Mailbox. And it's a new piece of software that's become pretty popular on how to kind of manage this with email. But you can do some of this just with rules and creating rules and Outlook or Gmail does a good job of this. You can do all kinds of like setting up VIPs. There's just a lot of ways to potentially do this to filter your email. It's a little different than deferring email, but there's a lot of systems you can set up. So now to your second question, Kirk, on the BCC, or rather your first question, I guess, the um, yeah, for BCC, I don't use it very much as well. I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Kirk. I, I generally don't like to blind copy someone. For those of you who, by the way, maybe not familiar with BCC, it's a field in email that it's called blind carbon copy. And if you put someone's email in there, that the person you put that in there sees the message, but the person who's in the to field doesn't know that other person got the message. Um, I also use this very sparingly, Kirk. I'm not a big fan of kind of secretive communication electronically. You know, if I'm going to send someone a message or if I'm going to send a couple people a message, I'm going to put them all on the message or a CC so everyone knows who got the message or who got the information. Here's here's the exceptions to that for me, Kirk. This is just the system I have is when I'm emailing, if I'm sending an email to a client and there's three or four of us working on a project, and this often happens with me where there's kind of three or four people working on something, and I want everyone to know that I've gotten back to someone, but I don't want the client to hit reply all and email all of us that uh, with another question, if especially if I feel like it's going to be an ongoing conversation, because I've found that when I copy three or four people, and then the client responds with a reply, then everyone starts to jump in on the conversation. It gets really, really confusing. So that is one time that I'll use BCC because not so much for secretive reasons, but just because I don't want to have email conversations going in all kinds of different directions. Um, But generally speaking, if anything's sensitive of nature, I'm not putting it on email anyway. I learned a long time ago that you can get in a lot of trouble for putting things in email that you don't necessarily want people to see. Um, I got in some trouble with that. Uh, in, a, in When I was in college, I worked for an employer and I posted something. It wasn't even an email. It was up on a news group. Back in the day, news groups were big. I posted something on a news group and I didn't realize my employer had access to it and read it. And um, and it, it wasn't a horrible, horrible thing that I said, but I, it was critical of my employer. And I got in some pretty big trouble for that, rightfully so. And so I learned really early on, thankfully, that um, you know, it, be careful about what you put in email. Anytime it's anything of any sensitive nature, Kirk, um, anytime it has anything to do with someone's performance in a negative nature or giving someone feedback or anything like that, I try so hard to never put anything like that in email. And I have disciplined myself over the years of when I get those emails, what I will do is I'll pick up the phone. Or if I absolutely have to reply to that some that person some way with a message, you know, maybe I'll send them a text or something like that. I'd never put that in email. You just never know when someone might get something forwarded or hit reply all accidentally. I've seen that happen so many times, and I know many of you have seen that as well too. So, Kirk, I think it's really good advice to uh, you know not blind carbon copy a lot if you have to do it, keep it minimal, and just to be you know generally open on email with who you're communicating with. Anytime the tough stuff comes up, is to uh, to the to the extent that you can is to handle that by phone or handle that even better, handle that in person if you can, because that's the kind of thing that uh, is going to get handled a lot more effectively with the facial expressions with the hearing the tone of voice that become really important when we handle situations of any complexity. So Kirk, I hope that's helpful. Uh, If I missed anything there, drop me a line and let me know if I can be helpful further. And I'll put links to all those resources I mentioned here in the show notes as well. The next question here is from Helena. 
Hi, Dave. My name is Halina. Uh, originally, I'm from Belarus, Central Europe, and uh, two years ago, I moved to San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you so much for the information that you share with all us. It's absolutely priceless. I have recently found your podcast, and they are very amazing. And they are exactly what I'm, I was looking for a long time. So, uh, I actually have a question, if you have any chance... I would really appreciate your experienced advice about my career choice. Uh, so before this very moment, I had a pretty nice career in finance and accounting spheres. Uh, my bachelor is economics, major in business and management. And recently I got promotion to an accounting manager position in construction company. But when suddenly I realized that this is not exactly what I want to do in my life. Actually, I absolutely don't want to dedicate my life to accounting. So I believe that I'm pretty good at explaining any material. So I absolutely thrill while explaining any subject that I really know and I understand. Multiple times I used to receive very positive feedback from my former classmates, colleagues and subordinates that I was always amazing when teaching them something. In the meantime, management and leadership as a science really excites me. Uh, in this regards, I am planning on applying to a business school for an MBA program uh, with emphasizing in management. But what concerns me is that I am not sure if it is really the right decision, business school. Maybe I need to consider some other degree. So, Dave, I have read about your education on your website. Uh, for some reason, you took master and PhD in organizational leadership, although your bachelor was in business. So, has education played a crucial role in your career or the particular career choice which was made one day? Uh, for me, as an accounting manager right now, for whom there are always plenty of jobs, although of the same kind, but still, uh, the most important question is where else a person with a management and leadership major can find himself after graduation? I would really appreciate your advice. And again, thank you so much for your podcasts. They are really amazing and they inspire me. Hey, Helena, thank you so much for the kind words about the show. I'm so glad that it's been helpful and inspiring to you. It's definitely part of my goal. And congratulations on your promotion. And hey, we've all been there uh, at some point in our careers. And if you haven't been, you probably will be at some point. Uh, we've been there where we we advance in our career, we get into the next role, the next position, it's exactly where we wanted to go, we've been working towards, and we get there and we're like, hmm, <laughs> this maybe wasn't what I wanted to do with my life, or this wasn't exactly what I thought this role was going to be about. And it sounds like you're at that position where you're asking some questions and thinking, okay, what is it that I really want to do? Um, and it sounds like you have an idea, an inkling of what that might be. It, so it sounds like maybe some some teaching or some training or coaching or leadership. And so, uh, so I'm glad to, to, to I'm glad you're asking questions about that. And so, my thought would be is on this, and I've got a, a few thoughts here on just what you've asked about as far as education and learning. Uh, first of all, how has this played a role in my career? Well, um. Let me let me give you an example. So when I was I worked for an education company starting off in my career and I was in a sales and management role. And when I left that organization, I like you actually wanted to transition to get into training um and I wanted to do coaching, I wanted to do teaching, I really had a passion for that. And uh, I came across the Dale Carnegie organization. And those of you who've been listening to the show know I, I work with Dale Carnegie and, and, and have been for almost 10 years. And so uh, when I came across the organization, the opportunity I had was to go into a sales role where I would sell training and, and consulting services to organizations. And as soon as I found out about that, I said, well, that's not what I want at all. I don't want to, I don't want to do any more sales. <laughs> so I, I, I'd done three or four years of sales. I was selling every day. I'm like, I don't want to do sales anymore. I just want to train. I want to do consulting. And I forget how I came to this conclusion eventually, but I realized that if I started off my career with Dale Carnegie and started off in sales, I might have the opportunity to go into go into do some more training and to actually get in the classroom 
and that I could leverage my previous experience and my previous um, my previous success with sales in getting positioned in a new industry in a new organization. And I'll tell you, I, at first I really discounted. I say I don't want to do this anymore. I've done this. Uh, I want to do something really different. And when I looked at it from the perspective of how can I take this knowledge that I already have and now apply it into something new and broaden my skill set with it and to be able to maybe even train and teach and coach on it, that was really a big shift for me. That was a really big opportunity for me. And it led to me being able to do a lot of things. Not only did I get to do training and consulting, but been able to lead in a sales capacity and actually learn that I really enjoyed the sales aspect of my job and got to be able to do a lot of things because of it. But if I had just kind of thrown that away and never looked at that again, I would have missed a whole lot of opportunities. I would have never taken the position. I might not even be doing this podcast right now if it not gotten a lot of that experience. And so the reason I mention all that, Helena, is to say for you, you know, you've spent, it sounds like you've had a great and successful career building up your expertise in accounting and finance. And that's great. And and you've now decided, hey, I want to do something different going forward. So what I would say, first of all, is would it be possible for you to take that expertise that you have and that experience that you have over the years that you've been doing it and to leverage that into doing something more with the areas you want to do more of now. And there's a lot of ways you could do that. So if I'm thinking about just things that you've mentioned, like teaching and training, I mean, there are so many things that most organizations need around that. Uh, Almost all organizations do some kind of employee training or employee orientations or have a need for there to be some coaching within the organization. So one of the things that you may want to start off by doing is just thinking like, okay, where could I go within my organization to provide some of this. And where I don't see it, you know, where could I volunteer even some of my time to do it? And it might mean that you take an extra hour or two a week to start doing some of that, um, some of those things that you want to do and really get a sense if that's indeed what you want to do and really what you want to spend your career doing. Um, And the great thing about that, especially with your organization, you can leverage a lot of your experience and your training that you've had over the years and to see if that's something that really resonates with you. So uh, so I would certainly try that out. And then the other thing, Selena, is you may want to start making some really good connections with folks that are doing training and teaching and instruction. So there are tons of opportunities in most communities. And, and of course, you being in the Bay Area, there's tons of nonprofit organizations uh, in the San Francisco area that are looking for people who have a passion for training and coaching. I, I know there's many, many down here in Southern California. I'm sure there are up there too. So that's a way to get involved. I'd certainly suggest connecting with the with ASTD, which is the American Society for Training and Development. So that's a great way to um, get to know some people. There's some very active chapters here in Southern California. I'm sure there are up there as well too. That's a great way to get to know people who are doing training, coaching, consulting, that type of thing. Um, there's tons of certificate programs. There's tons of extension programs out there for from a, for through a lot of the local universities, and you're in a place where there's going to be a lot of those. So there's a ton of stuff that you could do to gauge your interest in and see, you know, not only to start to get practical application of doing these things, but also at the same time to start to broaden your skill set too. Now I say all of that because. If I was going to get a master's degree today, and and I always coach any of my clients that are going thinking about going to get a master's degree, is you know that's a big investment of time and it's a big investment of finances. So I would want to be really sure that what I was going to get my master's in was going to be something that would be is going to be a thing that I'm going to be doing going forward. And so I would really challenge you to um, to do some of those smaller things first if you haven't already. And to see where that leads you and what connections you make and what you can learn from folks. And then to maybe start thinking about, could my could my formal higher education play a role in that? So you also asked, how has education played a role in my career? And, and I would say learning has played a huge role in everything that I do. I am constantly learning how to do things differently just about every day. And when I'm not, I'm not as effective as I am when I'm constantly learning. So learning plays a huge role all the time. 
How has formal education played a, a role in my career? It has been an important component. But I say an important component because I think the mistake that's sometimes made, um, at, at least with some of the people I work with in some organizations, is that if you get a certain degree, you're set. And the days of that are kind of over for, I think, most people in most industries, where if you get a master's degree in a certain field, you're kind of set and you're done and you're ready to go. And I think that a formal education, a great degree, is a is one piece of a tapestry of a successful career. But there's a lot of other things that go along with that. So since you asked about my education specifically, let me tell you why I did what I did. And to the extent that this is helpful to you or others, um, and I hope it is, uh, that'd be great. So I do have a master's and a doctorate in organizational leadership. There's three reasons why I did it. I knew I was going to be doing consulting and training in organizational behavior and leadership, probably some aspect of that for the rest of my career. And so um, in doing that specific thing, a master's degree in that field not only has provided me with the um, the strategy and the knowledge, but also some credibility in order to be able to do that. So that's one reason. The second reason is um, I wanted to teach, and I love doing university teaching, and I get to teach a couple classes a year. And so having a higher degree is uh, you know really a uh, something you need in order to do that, and so that was an important piece for me. And then third, and finally, you know, I just had a, I have a personal love for learning, and I enjoy, I enjoy going to, I enjoyed going to school. I'm not doing it anymore <laughs> formally, but um, the, you know, that piece of it, I just had the love for it. And I think that's a great reason to do a degree too. Is you know, if that's the reason you're doing it, and you have a passion for it, you just want to go for it. Great. Um, but uh, but for me, I probably would be hesitant to recommend a degree in leadership for anyone who wasn't doing one of those three things being important to them or some aspect of those. Um, what I would say is I don't think that getting a degree in leadership makes you a great leader. I think there are people who are great leaders who have degrees in leadership, and I also think there are people who are not great leaders who have degrees in leadership. Leadership as a degree is good for consulting, teaching. You know, If you have a passion for wanting to learn leadership theory, that's wonderful. It does not make you a great leader in and of itself. It's, again, one piece of of the puzzle. So, so if you're kind of thinking like, what way do I want to go around that? I would actually, you know, do some thinking first on, you know, what is it you want to get? What is it you want to learn? The kinds of things that you've mentioned of teaching and, and coaching people and just having a passion for that are not the kinds of things that sound to me like things you would get out of an MBA program, or at least most MBA programs. Uh, you know, most MBA programs uh, are, this is changing, but for the most part, are still very quantitative focused. You know, they're focused on, you know, the the finance, uh, budgeting, marketing, strategy. Uh, you're not going to find a lot of courses in most MBA programs that are on leadership, coaching, teaching, instruction, those types of things. You are seeing more of those courses, and there are some MBA programs that are doing a fantastic job of really putting more of an emphasis on the people side of management and leadership, and that's becoming more and more a part of MBA programs. But it's still, I think, the minority um, of, of programs out there. And so if that's something you decide you really have a passion for, you may want to think about a degree in leadership, or you may look at a degree in instructional design or some other aspects of that. But that's one of the things I would just, I, I would start off though, of going to talk to people, go to ASTD, go do some volunteer work, um, go do maybe a small extension program or a certificate program and, and get your feet wet. Just find out what's out there. Go talk to schools, go find out, you know, who's doing what you want to do. I think it's one of the best things you could do, Helena, is go take, you know, find a few people who are doing what you think is really cool and really exciting. Go take them out for coffee, find out where they went to school, find out what they say was most valuable for their you know their development for their success in their work and 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 learn from them and see what they say and i think that that's one of the great ways that you can get some wonderful guidance in your career and then the only other thing i'd mention about mba programs and just schools in general and this is you know a good reminder for all of us is every every school uses terms differently so for example, if you go to an MBA program and they say they specialize in management, 
Some schools use the term management and they mean things like logistics, global supply chain as far as management, you know, management of things more so than management of people. So just be sure if you, as you're examining programs and even if you decide to look into an MBA, uh, just make sure you know what the school means by the different terms they use. One school's degree in organizational behavior may be totally different than another school's degree in organizational behavior versus instructional design versus, you know, just about any other term or or, or or, uh, or aspect of it. So just keep that in mind as you're looking at programs and, and drop me a line as you start getting uh, further down your path. And I'd love to know more about how I can be helpful in any way. And, uh, and yeah, good luck to you, Helena. I'm, uh, I'm excited for what you do and I can't wait to see how you leverage what you already know in order to be able to do some of the great coaching and teaching you'd like to do. So the next question here is from Jennifer. This one actually got written in, and this is uh, went up on the Coaching for Leaders Facebook page. So if you're on Facebook and want to connect there, you can find it at coachingforleaders.com slash Facebook. Jennifer says, I have a background in customer service, and I'm, cr- and I'm currently in sourcing where they have no background, and we have so much to learn. I keep trying to tell... Uh, I keep trying to tell that we need training and metrics, but I'm in middle management and I can't seem to break the barriers. Do you have any suggestions? Jennifer, thank you so much for the question and thanks for hopping on to Facebook and submitting the question. Yeah, I have a few suggestions on this one. You know, what do you do when you see a need and yet doesn't seem like anyone else sees that need or maybe someone, you know, no one else is willing to make the investment in that? This happens all the time. So, First and foremost is you're going to need to make the business case for it. So when, and I I don't know how you frame this to other people in your organization, but let me just take what you've mentioned here in your question to me. So you said, we have so much to learn and we need training and we need metrics. If I'm a CFO or someone else who has to allocate um, funding for this, that sounds really expensive to me. Wow, there's a lot of things to learn. Wow, there's a lot of training that's going to be needed. Hmm, sounds expensive. So that's not that's not the kind of dialogue I'd probably use to frame how we can get the most out of what it is you're suggesting. So one of the things I'm always thinking of when I'm trying to influence someone in a leadership role is, okay, what's the business case that I can make for this? How can I... Um, how can I frame this in such a way that's going to show return on investment for the organization? So your organization may need to make a significant investment in training or metrics or tracking uh, in order to get the results they want. But if I'm framing that, I'm not going to be looking at that first from a standpoint of cost. I'm going to be looking on it from a standpoint of return on investment. So you'll need to make the case for how uh, you you spending say five or ten thousand dollars is going to result in a fifty thousand dollar or a hundred thousand dollar return on investment for the organization or whatever those amounts are. I'm just throwing those numbers out there. Um, and so I think what you're asking though is, well, <laughs> how do I even get to that point? I have a book suggestion for you, Jennifer. If you haven't already, um, check out on my email list those ten books that'll make you a better leader. One of them I recommend is a book by John Cotter. I've mentioned it on the show before, called Leading Change. And John Cotter in this book walks through a framework, a framework for how to how to influence change in your organization. It sounds like you may be trying to do that. And so the first of these eight steps that he mentions is establishing a sense of urgency. And I think that that's really key anytime we're trying to have a change happen is you'll need to establish why it's urgent for the organization to do it and why it's important. So this means that you'll probably need to collect some data yourself. You know, you may not have the funding to do it yet. So you may need to go around yourself and just collect some stories. You may need to do some of your own observation, maybe collect some data from what, you know, what is being said to customers and what customer service agents are doing or not doing, and then what's happening as a result of that. Um, See if you can collect some stories, not to get anyone in trouble or to be disciplinary, but just to collect some examples of what's going on out there and, and to be able to show the urgency of why what you say is needed is really needed and how that would actually help out. So you'll need to go and figure out where are why is this an urgent need? You know, why would the organization care about this from a business standpoint? Where 
is money being lost? Where are opportunities being missed? Where are customer requests not being honored? Where are refunds happening that they didn't need to happen? Um, I don't know what kind of industry you're in, but that those are the kinds of things that I'd be thinking about of where are the metrics that you can, you know, you you can pretty easily figure out or show, or maybe within some of the data systems that are already there, that would demonstrate where success level is right now. And then make the case. So, and you can make the case by going and talking to a few people in the organization and just saying, you know, hey, here's some information I've pulled. Here's why I think that this is important. And choose a few people that you, you know, are respected in the organization and they become part of what Cotter would call your guiding coalition. So that's step two is how do you uh, get a few people together who all care about this, who believe that this is important, and then can, then can go and influence the rest of the organization that this is a change that is needed. Now, let's say you try to do that, Jennifer, for whatever reason, that's not possible to do. You know, you could start on your own. Now, this is this is harder, um, but if you don't have the opportunity to do those other things for whatever reason, uh, you could start small. You could identify a couple of people who are on that customer service team who maybe are really looking for the next opportunity, who want to learn, who are those positive go-getter type people, and and those people are in almost every organization. Find the couple that would be open to some coaching from you. Maybe you take some extra time out of your day to coach them or to provide some feedback or maybe even provide a little bit of training to them. Um, and, uh, and you don't even have to tell anyone what you're doing or make a big deal out of it. Just offer the opportunity to help people be a little more effective and just do it on a casual basis. And then as you do that, you know, document what you're doing, say, Hey, you know, I, I coached this person on this and then watch what happens. You know, what kind of results do you see as, as a result of that? What are they doing more effectively? What kind of results are they, uh, are they producing for the organization that's better as a result of you doing some coaching with them. And then you can go and take that information and potentially make the case to make things better. Or, you know, if you can't, then maybe you do some more of that on your own. And so, but there's there's a couple, you know, there's a few ways you could potentially approach that. And, and that way, at least you're making progress. At least you know you're adding value to the organization. So I would challenge you to do that. Think in terms of the other person. And think in terms of whoever is going to need to fund this. What do they care about? What matters to them? What kind of data would they need to see in order to really uh, go for it and to make an investment? And if you start small and get some quick wins up front, you will most likely have better success than you would if uh, if you don't do that. And so again, leading change, John Cotter, I'd check that out. I think that'll provide you with a great framework going forward. Hey, uh, a thank you to everyone who sent in questions for this episode. It was really great to hear so many of your voices. And I hope that you'll take something from the show and apply it and do differently in your work. And if you do, I would love to hear what you did as a result of this. And particularly for those of you who asked questions, I'd love to hear what you did differently. So the best way to join the conversation is to go to coachingforleaders.com slash 120. That'll take you to the notes for this episode with all the links I've mentioned. It'll also take you to a place where you can comment on anything mentioned here. So I would love to hear your comments and feedback. And if you have a question for the show for a future question answer segment, go ahead and go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And again, you can record a question there. Always love getting audio questions so I can hear your voice on the air and everyone else can hear you as well. So coachingforleaders.com slash feedback, or you can call it in if you're here in the States, 949-38-LEARN. One more thing before I close up. Hey, you know, I was thinking back on the conversation that I had with David Sparks last week in episode 119. And the topic came up of, you know, we're both, we both have shows and we both get a lot of feedback from the community. And he said, uh, you know, I just love getting feedback and and helping people out. And that just really brightens my day. And I was thinking about that this week as I was getting messages from the community. And even though I didn't get back to all of you, I'm so sorry, I'll get back to you in the next couple of days here. But I was thinking how much I just love hearing from you, the Coaching for Leaders community. It has been such a wonderful year. So many messages so many ways, so many of you have reached out to me on LinkedIn, on Facebook, over email, the questions you've submitted for this episode. I 
have just been so blessed to be a part of your lives and your work in a small way. And uh, one of my goals, you'll remember those three words that I chose at the beginning of 2013 that I was going to focus my year around. One of them was to show up online and engage with people even more. And I, I feel like that's gone really well this year. And so many of you have responded by showing up too. I just love seeing messages and being able to communicate with those of you uh, who've reached out. And so thank you. Thank you for a wonderful year. Thank you for taking the time to reach out. And thank you for those of you who have written in in the last year and said uh, how the show's been helpful to you, something you've used, something that has inspired you to do something more effectively in the people you're leading and in your organization. Gosh, I can't tell you how just honored and humbled I am to be able to come to you each week. And, and I'm so grateful for the trust that you put in me to influence your development. And I uh, just wish you all the best in the coming year. And, uh, and for those of you celebrating the Christmas holiday this week, I just wish you all the best. Merry Christmas to you. And a special thank you to a whole bunch of people this week who have jumped in and joined my weekly update. I'm going to try my best to get names down here, but I'll tell you, I uh, I am struggling with some names sometimes, and I'm really sensitive to this because, you know, my I have a tough, tough last name too. So uh, forgive me in advance again if I mess up your name, but thank you to Nick Cianati, uh, Chikik Naidi, Allison Ciancilo, Trisha Brand, Richard Moffat, Jen Lackey, Jen Curthy, John Kay, Sharice Calero, Ted Helmers, Vicki Hogan, Arthur West, Vivek Mehta, Sanjay Mitra, Jen Desco, Keith Flowers, Andrew Magruder, Tucker Karlmark, Suntari Nigam Aradev, Chris Woodhouse, Richard Huntingdale, Ida Bendetto, and Neil Lux. Thank you so much for subscribing to my weekly update this past week. I publish a, a, a email each Wednesday, uh, and it'll be Thursday this week with the holiday, uh, that'll give you a booster shot between shows on how to lead better by giving you actionable advice on improving your communication, human relations, or personal productivity. And going forward now, uh, as of a couple weeks ago, the show notes, all the links from this show are going to be in that email as well. So if you'd like to get that too, go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe, and you'll get instant access to my video overview and downloadable guide on the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others. And I talked about one of them today, Leading Change by John Cotter. There's nine others that I think all of us should be familiar with. So check that out again, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. Have a wonderful holiday and I'll see you next week for the last show of the year. Take care.